the game! <laughs> All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuckadelics? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. I'm broadcasting from a hotel room chair with a towel on it. Always put a towel on it. Uh, in my underwear with my socks still on, that's all I'm wearing. I'm in a hotel in Birmingham, Alabama, looking at lightning striking a few miles away out my window. Rain is starting to trickle down. It was an amazing cloudburst today. It just came and it started and uh, and then it kind of moved through. It's been nice and damp and hot. I don't know why I'm saying nice. Humidity's not my friend. Is it your friend? Hey, the world is burning. Hey, did you know that? It's burning from the inside and the outside. Uh, it's burning because of us and because of it. It's exciting times, folks. And all I know is that I'm here and it's slow down here and things just plot along and the lightning striking and there's not a lot of traffic. And today I ate some food at uh, Saw's Soul Kitchen. Uh, for some reason, I've been trying to eat better because I been putting on the weight i thought something called uh, smoked chicken and greens chicken and greens staying away from the pork go with chicken and greens that sounds half healthy could be all healthy then i got the plate and what was on the plate was a a nice pool of grits and on top of that there was some uh greens some southern style greens and on top of that was the smoked chicken with a, a white barbecue sauce and on top of that was just a a sort of a a nice pile of thin onion rings yeah that was good and healthy. It was just like eating uh, at a restaurant where concerned people eat for their health. Not so much, but it was fucking amazing. And uh, looking forward to taking my statin later. That'll erase it, right? Isn't that what statins are for, to erase that? I've been good. I deserved it. I deserve to be uncomfortable. I deserve to not like myself five minutes after I eat it. How are you guys doing? Everything okay by you? I should mention who's on the show today because it was a lovely conversation. Uh, Mary Steenburgen. Mary Steenburgen is on the show. Uh, she's she's quite amazing. She's in a movie that starts tomorrow called Book Club with Jane Fonda, Candace Bergen, and Diane Keaton. Um that's tomorrow it starts, and we have a nice conversation about a lot of stuff, going all through the life, all through the uh, the causes and stories and the acting. and the. Uh, she's married to Ted Danson. Ted Danson had nothing but nice things to say about her, and they, they seem to really love each other, which is nice. Isn't that nice to really love people? Isn't it? Can you do it? How are you doing with that? I'm doing my best. I, I, I am capable of it, though not, uh, not great at it. I'm not great at the receiving love or giving love. Uh, I'm good at um, listening and talking empathetically and engaging with people in an honest way for about an hour or two. But when it comes to the long term, then I got to deal with trust and I got to deal with defensiveness and I got to deal with uh, paranoia and fear of manipulation and fear of being uh, uh, completely erased and steamrolled and then curious about my own self and who am I really? Am I an actor? Am I not an actor? And I'm talking not professionally. I'm talking about real life. Have I just constructed a character for myself to move through the world and deep down inside? I'm, I'm nothing but a small boy who uh, didn't quite realize himself. Is that possible? But, uh, but anyways, I, I received a lot of nice feedback uh, uh, about what I, I told you my experience was at uh, the Peace and Justice Memorial and the museum down in Montgomery. And um, I appreciate it. And I'm glad that, that, that uh, you know, people heard it and it, it had an impact for them. And, and they want to go and, and visit those places because it's, uh, 
was pretty astounding. The whole thing was pretty astounding. I got a, a, a few emails uh, here and there. Got one email from a, from a, a guy. I got an email from a, a, a local here. And um, the subject line just says, Southerners take on National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Mark, I was very happy to hear your comments about the National Museum for Justice and Peace. As an Alabamian, I've struggled with my state's history and how we address it. Your heartfelt descriptions of the art at the memorial and what it signifies was a wonderful thing to hear as I drove home in the humid Alabama evening. Having grown up in Alabama, I've been aware of the horrors you described for all of my adult life. I've experienced a little white guilt, in quotes, in my late teens and early 20s. Our past was deplorable, but I take comfort in the fact that our present is full of friendships and marriages between the races. We ain't solved all our problems in this regard, but we ain't done working on it either. Boomer lives. Thanks, Brian. That was uh, one of many emails. And, you know, I I can only talk about what's happening. I can only talk about my feelings, uh, you know, in, in real time and what I've experienced. It's weird. I've been a bit disconnected from television. I haven't watched television in five days. I am sort of still compulsively looking at my phone. I know what's going on. Uh, much of it is terrifying. Uh, there's no end in sight. I don't know what happens. Some of it seems good and then turns out it's not great. It's just, and a lot of it is speculative. I, I think it all seems speculative and, and we feel like we don't have a lot of control over stuff. So I ate a big plate of food today and just did my work and focused on the present. Is that all right? Is that okay? <laughs> So Mary Steenburgen, uh, brilliant actress, uh, a very decent and sweet person. I enjoyed talking to her. Her new movie, Book Club, with Jane Fonda and Candace Bergen and Diane Keaton, is in theaters tomorrow, May 18th. This is me talking to Mary back at the, uh, the new garage. I don't have kids and I don't I and I don't regret it because I don't know how people do it I don't know how you don't panic all the time I do you do of course then you have grandchildren and just when your panic is sort of eased off and you went you go they're kind of figuring it out then your uh, grandchildren is like oh I'm too I'm too vulnerable <laughs> <laughs> my dad used to have this oh the squeezy muscle yeah, thing yeah his had green what? handles Were they, was it wooden I remember my dad had a wooden one no it was green plastic handles and it was and I and he'd sit there can't and can't really do it very well now that one's hard and I couldn't really do it very well then I feel like that one's harder shit. That's that's hard yeah that's super hard like he oh he just had uh, he, he just had one for around the house I think yeah. my dad had them too. Was it a dad thing? I don't even know what you call those. Those are squeezy exercise things. I guess they're hand strengtheners or yeah. something. Let's see if we can. So do I oh, go right there? Oh, that's great. You can okay. move the mic too. Yeah. But whatever you want. So you, okay. uh, so your dad had, uh, that's a good start. He had hand yeah. strengtheners. <laughs> <laughs> We're already yeah. into the deep stuff. Yeah, we <laughs> your, really are. Your dad's hand exerciser. Yep. We're, yeah. we're, we're, it was sitting in the living room next to his chair, which was this leather recliner that no one could sit in but my dad. Was it a, like a lazy boy type of sit thing? Yeah, very much like a lazy boy. So that was a but throne? not but not a brand, not that fancy. Oh, really? Um, yeah, it was his special place in. Um, 
I was thinking about our house the other day, which I... That you grew up in? Yeah, which I love. And actually, my sister and I still own it. Because, really? Yes, because I'm emotionally stunted and can't let go <laughs> of things. <laughs> and um, But um, I was thinking about how hilarious it was that we had a phone and an extension oh, yeah. because our house was so small that... If you went to the extension, you could still hear the person talking. Right. Like there wasn't a, a privacy oh, oh, thing. Oh, so if they you, the even house, walk down the hall, you could still hear them? Is that totally. The house <laughs> walk down the hall is like three steps. Where is that house? It's in North Little Rock, Arkansas. North Little Rock, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. That's where you came from, Arkansas. Yeah. What that? How many siblings do you have? One. Just the two of you? Yeah. You and your sister? Yeah. My parents parents, uh, lost three children, but but my sister and I are the survivors. Like, lost them when? At what point? I had a sister that lived 12 days and died, and then I had a brother that was stillborn, and then, then they had me, and then- they lost one more child, and then they had my sister. And I think it sort of explains a lot about my life because literally I was treated like the miracle child of all time because I lived. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess you can understand that. How did how did that kind of tragedy befall your folk? I mean, was it were you was it uh, their hospitals or what? It's just bad luck yeah it was it was uh oh my god this is what a sad way for me to start this interview (laughs) i don't know uh uh but yeah it it it, you know it definitely had an impact on my family Uh but i don't think i realized the impact of it until i was grown sure um uh and and could kind of think about what it means to lose one child, let right. alone three. Right. And after you go through all that, and even yeah. if it's that, you know, I don't guess it's ever easy. Yeah. And then it kind of also makes me understand why, you know, they were so, they were amazing parents. And yeah. I guess partly it's because, you know, they were so grateful that uh, they had children. They'd worked so hard for it. Oh, my God. It's so heavy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, But it, was it just one of those things that was not talked about and just you, everyone knew it happened and that was that? Well, the we, the my sister, the older sister that lived 12 days, um, Suzanne, yeah. she, uh, it's actually a horrifying story because she, w- she had a little something wrong with her heart and then... She was in some type of a um, uh, respirator machine thing in the room with my mother, uh-huh. and it malfunctioned, and it also wouldn't open. And my mother, oh uh, my know, god! So, so my parents for years had people suggesting that they sue. Yeah, you know, and and they would never have done that. Yeah. It was such a, that would be such a sin to them to have made money somehow off of her death. And that was kind of the people I was raised with, you know? Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, that it's a principle. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I know. Yeah. I've met people like that. I, I don't, I, it's not my instinct to sue either. Yeah. I think it's something that people, it, when people are sewers, they, that's what they think immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And people who aren't are just sort of like, no, I don't, you know, 
there's it's no justice mm-hmm. in it. Yeah, and also, why would I want to spend my life reliving this over and over? Oh my God, yeah. it's so sad and yeah. horrible. Yeah. So so, you, so now every single thing we're going to talk about is going to be going <laughs> up from here. <laughs> but you were the you're the oldest. So I'm the oldest, right. yes, the oldest who who made it, and, right? And, and and my sister is five and a half years younger than me. A school teacher, she's retired now, but school teacher in Arkansas. I came she from, stayed, huh? Yeah, and I I came from a lot of teachers. My my mother taught some. My aunt was a teacher and then a principal, and she was a huge part of my life. And and uh, so that was the. Summers were spent in Newport, Arkansas at Gibbs, Gibbs Albright Elementary pretending I was a teacher in, in a classroom with like chalk and blackboards. Oh, yeah. and it was so luxurious. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. so like crazy wonderful while my aunt was in her office. Oh, that's that's where you, they she bring you to work and you get to play. Yeah. And and it was like the whole school was my playground. So oh. I, I loved it. It's so weird because I have no it's one of those parts of the world where I have no sense of Arkansas. I've oh, never you don't? Oh, I've it's never stunning. It's really? so beautiful. It's such a physically beautiful state and for some reason it has a crazy wide variety of tree uh-huh. life so the autumns there are just uh, everything you think of about New England autumn color it's very much there in Arkansas right because the Ozarks yeah that I, th- I feel Ozarks. like I've, I feel like I've driven through the Ozarks yeah but yeah. I don't feel like I've spent any time there and it's I think it's in my brain it, it gets cataloged in like kind of like backward southern right. it, it, I know that's wrong and mm. decent people have come from there yeah yeah but I don't like I wouldn't know Maybe I've driven through Little Rock, but I don't know what it's like culturally. I mean, what, are, are your recollections good recollections? Yeah. They're all good. Yeah. Well, I don't know if they're all good. But no. <laughs> I mean, I'm a human, so no, they're not all good. But um, but I was raised in a really interesting moment because I was starting grade school just as Central High was uh, had been uh, desegregated. And so the um, the... The heroes who went to Central High, you know, I saw all these images of them going to school and with the cop of the National Guard there, right? right? And I was so young because I was just starting school that in my brain, that's what happened to you when you went to school. Like suddenly it's like You're escorted by soldiers. Yeah, like it looks so scary and loud and people are screaming and I I went from be, having been excited to go to school to no, I don't want to go to school and then I think my parents realized the imagery that I was seeing on television. Terrifying. So, but then of course I also realized, oh, what's different about me and them? It's right. the color of our skin. Right. And, and so it it was a really interesting time to be raised there because you you really couldn't ignore race, right? So um, you became you became one way or the other. You just had feelings one way or the Either other. Either you were against uh, segregation or you were for segregation. Yeah, or even just Worse. basically <laughs> yeah. people with dark skin and people with light skin you either had a feeling that one was superior to the other or you didn't and and it partly depended on 
on who, you know, and it, it wasn't a place where people couldn't think about it. it you well, had to Yeah, because it was it. so in the national spotlight. That yeah. was a big deal. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, how could you not for at least a decade or two? How could that not be part of the conversation about everything? It was. It was, um, you know, and then when I was in seventh grade, for the first time, I went to school with African-American kids. Uh There were three of them. And um, uh, they were my teachers. They were definitely my teachers, you know, because... Your fellow students. Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, first of all, they were handpicked by the black community to be bless their hearts to yeah. be emissaries and and to really oh my god and what year there was, was this? so much what grade? pressure on these three kids what grade seventh oh really yeah and it uh and one was a science genius one was the quarterback who was brilliant mm-hmm and then one uh, one girl who, Karen Muldrow, who was in my class, who um, was beautiful and, and wise beyond her years and, and so smart. And, you know, they were the first people I knew that I really got to know. And the pressure color. was still on at that time. Then I mean everyone knew it or it was Oh my God. It was it was I mean it's hard for people now when you talk about it to even understand how much pressure they were or, under. Or, or what segregation when it was and re- what it really was. I mean, obviously, people talk about you know cities being segregated now and that mm-hmm. segregation institutionally still exists, which may be true, mm-hmm. but, but back then or before that, mm-hmm. it was just the way it was. Blacks here, whites here, that's that. Yeah. At one point, um, some years ago, um, I was given a, an award, the Sinclair Lewis Award, which was really lovely to receive. But in trying to write a speech about it, I kept thinking especially about Karen uh-huh. and and how utterly terrifying it must have been for her to go to a school where she knew that most people didn't want her there and um, and how scary it must have been for her parents and everything else. And so as I kept struggling with the speech, I finally just gave up and I tracked her down and I called her and I said... <sighs> Can I fly you out to come with me to an event? And I gave the award to her because I said, this is your award, really. Oh, my God. Because if if I grew up to care about such things, you're an enormous part of why. Because you you were my example of courage. You were mm-hmm. one of my examples of somebody being, you know, beyond brave. Yeah. And where'd you find her? Was she still in yeah, Arkansas? She, yeah, I found her. Yeah. And was she? Uh, She's like, lovely. Yeah. <laughs> when did you do that? Oh, my God. I think it was about 12, 12 wow. to 15 years ago. Was she just sort of, uh, had she not heard from you at all? And you just had... No, we'd, we'd occasionally uh-huh. corresponded or seen each other at oh, different events. That's but, crazy. Yeah. It, was so, it must have been so nice. Did you both cry? I, yeah. I mean, I was... I, was, <laughs> I just started crying hearing about it. <laughs> well, it was... I realized at one point in trying to write, I, I kept being compelled to write about her. Yeah. And then I thought, this is so disingenuous that you're just writing about her when she's the one who did it. You right. know? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I realized that pretty much everything I understood about um, 
social change uh-huh. in my life yeah. went back to her. Right. You know, and those other two and those other two young men. Yeah. And but but she's the one I got to know the best. So in, in growing up with that, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that your family was on the right side of things. Yes. My parents were, um, my parents loved uh, the Kennedys. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. I have a really vivid memory of the day that President Kennedy died. It was a weird experience uh-huh. because I was in fifth grade and uh, I almost never missed school and my parents were not they didn't allow me to miss school. And so I had to be really super sick to miss school. And I remember waking up and just having such a weird feeling that I couldn't go to school that day. And I remember also that I faked being sicker than I was because I knew my dad was going to be home that day. My dad was a freight train conductor. And so part of the time he was at the other end of the line and part of the time. Within the state? No, he went to Poplar Bluff, Missouri. That was his run from Little Rock to Poplar Bluff on a freight train. How far is that? I should know that, but I don't know. But it's it's a town um, so like in a day, just over the border of Missouri. So in a day, he'd make one or two runs? No, no. Just he'd one? He'd be gone. He'd be gone. He'd, he'd spend like two days at home and then he'd get a call in the middle of the night and we'd pack our... He'd pack his grip, as he called it, which is a little leather bag. And, uh-huh. and um, we had an old Chevy, and my mother would put us in the car, and we'd drive him to work at 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning, because my mother couldn't leave us alone or me for, uh, right. alone in the house. And we only had one car, so we couldn't be without the cars. Everybody so up, can tell every, you gotta take that. Everybody work. up, and so I saw my, I saw that train yard at at two a.m., three a.m. I saw, I have this beautiful memory of my dad standing on a boxcar against the dawn sky, waving at me as we pulled away. Um, yeah, so... Why was it an emergency situation? Why didn't you have a regular schedule? Why was it this middle-of-the-night business? That's how trainmen used to work. Oh, really? I, mean, I don't know what it's like now. For but There's so many changes because of uh, computers, but that's how trainmen, the call used to come. And, but he worked every week. Yeah, you never knew when you were going to work, work. My dad had some health problems in my childhood, but when he could work, yeah. that's how it worked. Okay, yeah. so the day John Kennedy so died. So the day John Kennedy died, I, I, something was wrong. I don't know if it was just feeling something weird You didn't know, you hadn't in the heard anything. You oh, just there wasn't it. anything to have heard yet. And and uh, I didn't go to school. Yeah. And it was pouring, pouring, pouring. Pouring rain, like torrential rain, so much that the gutters across the street had backed up and the street had started to flood. And we had this picture window at our house. And I remember just watching this like torrent of rain. And the Department of Water and Power came to deal with the the gutters that were um, backed up. And my dad put on like a rain slicker and ran out into the street to go help the men. Yeah. And so uh, they're all across the street. And clearly the men in the truck had a radio on. And so I just remember like, almost in slow motion watching the men run from the gutter 
that was overflowing yeah. over to the truck, including my dad, and um, and and put their heads in there. And I just remember my dad, my dad's body language that something I knew something terrible and huge had happened. You could just see it in his body. And then he came running across the street and and ran you know, didn't even take the dripping coat off and ran to the phone in the kitchen and called my mom. And that's how I found out what had happened is he told her at work that what was happening. Oh. And it was like, it was just, and so I saw it all, whatever they showed on television, I did see in real time, whatever they showed because I was home. It was like just the most horrible, yeah. worst thing that could happen yeah. to, to everybody, to the yeah. country, for yeah. most people. It was like, I can't. I don't. I. I don't. I was two months old, but I. My, but that feeling of of somebody who was so loved and so much hope was put in. Yeah. Just like just taken out. Yeah. I. Fe- I felt like somebody like him could understand, even in spite of the fact of how he was raised and right uh, money and all that. I sort of felt understood by him yeah. somehow. As right. Poor kid in Arkansas. Did you, you know, grow, did you feel like you guys were poor? Well, we wouldn't have, we would have been kind of solidly middle class, except for the fact that my dad had multiple heart attacks during my childhood and he couldn't work for years at a time. So a family of four lived on what a, uh, a secretary for the school administration made. So right. was, that's what your mom did? Yeah. Uh-huh. So, you know, until we could be old enough to work ourselves and, you know, help out. It yeah, it was challenging. He had a heart condition? He did. He had multiple heart attacks and throughout his life? Yeah, he got when in nineteen eighty one he had um a surgery and then he lived eleven more years in his heart. He didn't he didn't die of a heart attack. He died of um Lung cancer from his chewing tobacco. His, lung cancer from the chewing tobacco. Yeah, which a lot of people don't know you can do, but you can. You can get lung cancer from chewing tobacco. What was his brand? Oh, my God. I should remember, like but Red I tried Man? to probably something was like, like that. Was it like the pouch or I, the can? No, it wasn't a can. It was a patch. Oh, yeah. so he had a wad all the yeah, time? Yeah, and he wouldn't do it in front of us. He would go out in the backyard and, and chew tobacco. Stick and, a wad in his mouth? Yeah. Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah, he was a Southern, you know, yeah. a Southern guy. Yeah, it did, but it came in a pouch, not in a little brick. Like you, you can't, uh, it's so funny. You can remember the hand exercises, but you can't remember the tobacco. You know why? Because I hated it and and because I knew it was dangerous somehow. Yeah. And also, uh, he he was somehow ashamed of it. And so he would go in the backyard. Uh-huh. I just remember... A, a little plastic envelope. Uh-huh, right. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was that was his thing. Yeah. Not in booze, no. He went through a little period of that and and then I think he was he had tremendous self-restraint. He was somebody who you know, the doctor told him, don't do that, and right. so he didn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> but the doctor should have told him that about chewing tobacco. Well, maybe they didn't know. I don't know if they knew, yeah. And your mom was just sort of, like, kept My the house together? My mom was this dreamy, incredible... I, I sometimes say it was like being raised by a fairy. Yeah. <laughs> she was the gentlest creature that I've ever known in uh-huh. the world, 
her mom married a man who had older daughters, uh-huh. and, and her dad died when she was quite young in a car accident, and my grandmother, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but she had to be put in some kind of a hospital uh-huh. uh, far away, and so my mother was basically orphaned, and um, and somebody took her when she was six years old, they remember... Or she always remembered that they put her in a horse-drawn carriage and they dropped her off at one point and they said, walk a mile down that road and there's a schoolhouse and that's where you're going to live now with your sister. And they drove off <laughs> for a six-year-old. Oh and um, so she walked down the road and um, her sis- older sister Lillian was teaching school there and my aunt raised my mother from that age on. And, and uh, she... She had like she was very childlike, and yet, you know that phrase "steel magnolia." Like my mother, my mother did so much to make our family survive, and oh, yeah. she was heroic. Yeah. But she she was this um, thin, delicate, beautiful, um, otherworldly like person. Uh huh. She was just, but she would do, like, my sister was telling me this story about, that was one of the most recent, before my mom died, and she's been gone about five years now, but my sister was telling me that in our church, someone came to our church, and that was clearly a transgender person, um, and... um had never been to the church before. This is back in Arkansas? In North Little Rock. And and this is when my mother was very elderly. And so my mom, my mom at this point, you know, had to use a walker and all that. So so my mom looked over and saw that um, this um, gentleman, I think it was a gentleman that, um, because I just remember that um, he was alone Mm -hmm. and my mother got up and used her walker and walked over and said, may I sit next to you? And then just (laughs) sat there and there was no effort to try to get him to join our church or Uh anything. She just couldn't bear that he might be sitting alone and then he might feel like he wasn't welcome or something. (laughs) Right. And um, so that was, when you asked me, were they, you know, when people talk about liberals and all this stuff, we never knew those labels. Sure. Like nobody ever preached politics in our house. It was just a question of treating other people decently. Yeah. And, and that was what I was taught, but it it was never. I'm amazed now at the sheer ugliness of our abilities oh, yeah. to divide ourselves the, from each other. The polarization, uh, yeah. yeah and the, well, I think that somehow people have gotten stranded in their living rooms somehow. That 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 the amount of information they're able to take in on a daily basis on their own that connects them with other people that are like minded. Uh, but maybe in another state, there doesn't seem to be a lot of people sitting next to people in churches who are strangers. Right, exactly. Let me sit next to you and we'll sing this hymn together. Right. It's on, yeah. you know, page 57. There's a disconnect, yeah. I think, between 
people. Uh, yeah. And and I, I it's it's all it's it's scary and sad. You know, I, I we I it, it's hard to get out, but you should. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. To get out among people. Yeah. And to do that because I I don't do it either. But it, but it's all it's it's just uh it's kind of heartbreaking sometimes. Yeah. To see how people are so isolated and angry and hateful. Yeah, fame can do that too. Fame. It's one yeah. of the fears for me about about um, uh, the repercussions of working in our business. Is Celebrity. That, yeah, mm. like I was scared me to death as a, a young parent. Yeah. You know, I didn't want my children to not understand how people live in the world. You right, know? And right. So I think I ran away. I, we, we moved to Ojai when my kids were really little and I've, had a relationship with the Ojai for many years. With your first husband? Yeah, Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, because I was at a party. I saw him there, I Did think, you? with one of your kids. Oh, with Charlie, probably. Yeah, because it was up in Ojai. It was at Jason's yeah. house. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Jason Siegel. Yeah. Well, Charlie is really good friends with Jason. They made a movie together, and my son's a writer-director. I didn't introduce myself to Malcolm or any of... I didn't. Oh, well, you should have, because it's quite a treat. I, it, it seemed like it might be, but it, oh was, my a, God. it was a little He's... intense. I, I don't know what, what went through my head. I didn't know how to go about it, really. He was just sitting there... Because he's he's a fairly striking guy from your memory. Because he's he's just dug into your memory. Yeah. Because of a couple of roles, one Cl- main role, Clockwork Orange. Sure. You know, and but but like I I have also seen him in other things. But there's something about you know it it just he's intimidating. It, the idea of him was intimidating to me. Yeah. He <laughs> he's he's incredibly fun. Oh yeah. And um and uh yeah. If if you get the chance again, don't blow it again. You want to you want to yeah. say hello. And he's a good dad, good guy. Oh yeah, he's he's very special. He's he does everything in his own unique way. He's uh-huh. not you know he's not um, the father's father knows best that dad. Right. He's an inspirational dad in a million different ways. And, and you guys get along apparently. Oh, I love him. I will always, <laughs> always love Malcolm. He's just <laughs> one of the great characters in the world. It's so nice to have yeah. uh, exes that you just, without a second thought, can love. and. Yeah, we were, we... I think we worked hard. We loved our kids so much. Mm-hmm. And I think there was enough... Um, there had been enough affection for each other that when we split, you know, I'm not saying it didn't suck. And there were moments that I felt like I was going through surgery without anesthetic or Mm -hmm. something, but, but the overriding desire was to somehow make this a life that our kids didn't have to make terrible choices in. Uh And, um, and having had, you know, a great relationship with my dad and a great relationship with my mother, I, I didn't want my kids to only have one of those. Right. And so, um, so we just we just made it work, you know. And both Malcolm and I are, you know, we're actors. We're capable of being ridiculous children. And somehow in that time, we did manage to behave like grownups. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, but when did you decide to do that? Like being a, a, what were you doing in in Little Rock, North Little Rock? What what occupations did you hold before you were like, I got to get out of here? Um, let's see. Well, 
later in New York for six years, I would be a, a waitress. So you, but, but you moved to New York. What was what made you do that? That seems to have taken uh, um, a big leap. I I knew I was an actor. I just sort of weirdly knew that that's what I was, and and uh, reading had been incredibly important to me yeah and when they used to make fun of me and my family because when they would say well we don't need to read the book just watch mary read the book (laughs) because evidently i was making a lot of faces (laughs) and um i was deeply involved you know and um and so there was a moment where i just realized you know acting is just sort of a natural extension of reading is just making it more dimensional and and putting myself in the middle of it yeah. you know and but i've been thinking about imaginary worlds a lot <laughs> and so uh i went to one year of college to a really um amazing school in arkansas called hendrix um what and kind of what kind of, is a regular it's a liberal college? arts uh-huh. you know i didn't yeah. want, i don't want the whole sorority thing that wasn't my scene yeah, and so sure. this was a small liberal arts college and it was it's really quite still there yeah it's amazing an amazing school and and then someone there saw me in a play the the professor that directed me in the play said have you ever thought about going to new york and i, I think he probably thought maybe, what play was it it's you... called it was called the night thoreau spent in jail about the relationship between emerson and thoreau which uh-huh. is kind of a cool subject yeah and um, by the same writers as I think inherit the wind, if I remember correctly. And but, but so so I, I think he meant go someday when you graduate from college. Right. Go, go. <laughs> but yeah. I knew it was going to be tough for me to afford to yeah. keep going to college, and um, and so somehow I got it in my head that maybe I could go to this acting school in New York and I could work there and I could somehow pull this this off. And so... What, she, which, which acting school? It was the Neighborhood Playhouse. It was with the great Sandy Meisner, who, was, who now kids study, that study acting, study the Meisner method. But sure. I, I got to study with him. So, but how did you know about him? How did you get well, this idea in Little Rock that you were going to... I know. Uh, so I still have the list. The guy yeah. gave me a list. Who? Oh, okay. Um, the my teacher. professor, yeah. Kenneth Gillum. He gave me a list and I still have it. And he said, these are all the great schools in New York. And he checked one and he said, this one is the hardest one to get into. Uh-huh. Um, but there is a great man there named Sandy Meisner. And so so I didn't I ignored all of the other schools and I just <laughs> applied to that one um, because I think there was something there there was some sort of confidence that I was somehow going to be able to do this, and I'm not sure where that came, what that was, because yeah. I, I hadn't really earned that. But I don't think if you if you I I think what it is it's for people that know that they have to be something or that they are something, there you, your brain doesn't have any other options. That's exactly right. Yeah. I really didn't have a B plan. I mean, right. I, I told people a B plan, yeah. but I never believed it. The B plan was, I'm going to go learn to be a theater teacher and then come back to Arkansas sure. and teach theater. Yeah. And that was way less embarrassing than going, I'm going to go to New York to be an actor. Because right. we'd never met, at, we didn't know actors. Like, <laughs> no, we, you why know, would you? Yeah, I've been to like three <laughs> plays in my life, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and never been to Broadway yeah. or any, I hadn't 
traveled, you know, I, yeah. I, actors weren't real. I mean, when I tried to picture <laughs> wealth. I'm not sure they are a lot of them. But. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. I'll yeah. take the dagger out of my heart. No, but, that, wasn't, that but, wasn't for you. I didn't say all of them. But when, like for me, somebody, we were talking about money the yeah. other day and I was saying. Who, you and Ted Danson? No. Oh. No, a friend and I were talking about money and and I said, my image of wealth, and I'm not joking, yeah. was the house in the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> yeah. And I used to fall asleep at night standing at the top of that staircase in uh-huh. my mind and dressing myself in fabulous clothes yeah. and waltzing down the staircase. Yeah. And it's such a laugh if if you saw my house today, yeah. like how different it is from that oh, You image. didn't get that house? Good for you. No, I didn't get that house. <laughs> so, all right, so you, you're, you're, you're going to track down Sandy Miser. You're, you're leaving Little Rock. You tell your parents you're going to go be learn how to be a theater teacher, and you just go to New York for the first time? Move I the- got on a plane. I mean, it was like, yeah. And I go to New York and I stay in this place called the East End Hotel for Women where you got a room and two meals a day for $42 a week. So you can imagine. It was it was indigent women who, you know, eventually probably, well, now they'd be homeless women because there isn't, I don't think there are places. So it's like, like an SRO kind of. Yeah. And, and it had said. Halfway in the pro- house. In the brochure, it said um, adjacent swimming pool. Well, the adjacent swimming pool was the park next to the place that had a little waiting pool. <laughs> it was like this deep, you know, six uh. inches deep. And, <clears throat> but anyway, I met two other women there and we became friends. And eventually we moved into a one bedroom apartment together and then in manhattan in manhattan and you know i started out being selling books at double day bookstore on um do you do you remember the double day bookstores tell me where it is it was on there were two bizarrely close to each other 53rd and 5th and 57th and 5th and i worked at oh yeah i kind of do remember that yeah Yeah, yeah. a spiral staircase going up and it was like early 70s and the guys used to stand to watch anybody in miniskirts go up the stairs which is really lame but i remember i remember walter cronkite coming in and buying 250 dollars worth of hardcover books yeah and i was like Holy cow, that's rich. That is rich, man. <laughs> Not like, wow, he's a reader. He really is learning things. It's no, like, because no. we had the Bible and yeah. we had a set of world books that my aunt had gotten for the, us. When you were growing up. Yeah, yeah. and that was the hardcover books <laughs> in our house. And and to to just blow $250 on hardcover books, like you, you don't even want to buy paperbacks so you can get more. <laughs> I thought that was the coolest thing the ever. The luxury, the life I of know, luxury. I know, I was so entranced, you know. And I remember Ann Miller, who the great tap dancer, she came in at one point yeah. and bought books. And it was a really cool job, except that um, <clears throat> you got a 33 and a third discount mm-hmm. on your own books. So every paycheck... I had bought so many books, I had no paycheck. And so I, I was like, it was not going to happen. What kind of books were you buying? To, like theater stuff or just books Of to course, read? tons of theater. Yeah. And uh, I loved biographies. And around a little bit later than that, 
uh, Shogun Shogun came out. I remember like I was a co-check girl James at that Quavel, point. Yeah. yeah, and I I was a co-check yeah. at the Lorelei Dance Hall, and I would sit there reading. Um, uh, yeah, Shogun. reading Shogun. You were you were a co-check girl. For a while, well, when, it was so is, much better to waitress, but uh, because you made so much more money. Well, when did you go? What? How did did you go find Sandy Meisner? I got accepted into this school by some freaking miracle. After you moved there? No, no, before I moved there. That's why I moved. Oh, there. so you went? You did a trip? I did. I flew to Dallas, where there was a regional representative of the school, and I did. I he didn't even ask me to audition. He just asked me to talk to him about why I wanted to do this. Not and, Sandy Meisner, but no, God just some, no. And and then I was so dumb that when I went to school, <laughs> I didn't even know which guy Sandy Meisner was. Like everybody that kind of popped up and spoke to us, I thought, oh, that must be him. And then finally. When I saw him, I went, "Oh no, that's him." <laughs> you got it. Yeah, I got it. So that, but that didn't happen until you moved to New York. Yeah, that was in New York in 1972. So, so that's like sort of peak Meisner, right? Oh yeah. Well, I was the last class to study with Meisner before he had his larynx removed um, because of his throat cancer from smoking. So, yeah. So I actually, he taught after that. He taught with the whole method. Yeah. Uh, but, but I, um, I remember his voice. I remember, I can hear it. I can hear it so clearly and I can hear his challenges to me. And, and then, and I, I'm proud to say that, you know, I think I made him proud because when I won an Oscar, I thanked him and it meant a lot to him, you know. But I also remember just blowing it so many times in front of him, just like just doing such a crap job. Well, what was it like? Because you know, I've talked to people, you know, either jokingly or or smugly, not me, but, you know, like the Meisner method has become this thing that a lot of actors who trained in New York are going to do some Meisner. At some point, they're going to do some Meisner. But I've not talked to anybody. Like, I've talked to Martin Landau, who knew um, the other method people, you know, mm -hmm. I think Strasburg, and mm -hmm. I can't remember who he was. I, I, I uh, went there just as an invited observer. I went there, too. And so I sat in on Stras Strasburg sessions. Was Landau there? He's probably gone by then. I maybe think even. maybe so. Yeah. yeah, I don't recall ever seeing him do an exercise or work, but I remember. I think I remember seeing him there. So you were there, like after. So the whatever those teachers had split up, but there was a relationship between Strasberg and Meisner still. Like Not he, really. No, that isn't why I was there. I was there because I'd graduated from the neighborhood playhouse. And a friend was auditioning um, at the studio and asked me to be in the audition oh, with him. Scene partner. And a scene partner. And, and at the end of it, they said, um, would, would you, uh, we're interested in you doing your own audition. So I did. And on the basis of that, they invited me to be an observer there, which um, was fine until one day they were all, you know, worrying about some acting problem. Yeah. And, and in my brain, I thought, S I know what Sandy would say about this. And so I raised my hand <laughs> and I, I had the good sense not to quote Sandy Meisner because right. yeah. I knew there was a rivalry. But I, I did say, well, you might try this or, yeah. you know, whatever it was. 
And then a few minutes later, a note was passed to me. And I looked at it and it said, please come into the office. And I thought, oh, God, I hope something hasn't happened. Of course, I'm worried my dad's had a heart attack, which is how I spent my life. But um, I go in there and, of course, they say, you're an invited observer. You're not invited to speak. Oh, really? Yeah. And was Stroudsburg teaching? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So I was not. So after that, I was like, I don't know. Fuck it. I don't know. Fuck that. Yeah. And, and I, I was done with it. Well, how did, well, how did Meisner teach? I mean, like when you, like, I, obviously, like when you get there, he was sort of the, the star of his school, right? You felt the power of him. You definitely felt the power of him. Yeah. He was, he was, he told me in later years, he expressed regret for how almost and sometimes emotionally brutal he was uh-huh. as a teacher. He mellowed over the years yeah. and he regretted it. Yeah. Um, but he, I will say this, um, I've never learned more from a teacher than I did for him. He was a true teacher. He really was. He, yeah. And and the method that he figured out, the thing that was beautiful about it, I mean, it's very easy to pick apart or to kind of take tiny aspects of it and yeah. think you know it. But as he taught it in, yeah. in that school, um, uh, you started to act without having your head go crazy and think about how to be brilliant in your head. Right. And and that the the whole secret to it is that you put your attention on the other person. And the other person you just turned your head. You didn't pre plan that. Right. You just turned your head when yeah. I said that because you're trying to understand what I meant. Yeah. And but actors in a scene, if we're doing this scene, it's yeah. very tempting to try to sculpt it or to plan it or to you know, but but with Sandy, he forced you into a true listening and and picking up from the other person uh-huh. either in silence with silence n- not so much with the words as just with the moments yeah every little moment had a life of its own and and that was that was what he found a way of getting you there without you being able to think about it very much and that's the trick that's the tr- that's that's the goal is to that not think about it and and you know, when I do something well, I'm I'm doing that. And the thing that's so fascinating to me still about being an actor is that it's ephemeral and elusive, and and I I don't have that under my belt. I just am still trying to do that, and that's what's so interesting about it. Right? Is like I didn't. You know, if you truly have mastered your craft, well. What else is there to do? Right, of course, right, and and I think that other systems of acting probably uh, enable you to apply craft to a point where you can feel those things. Like it seems that the two camps of of engagement are something emotional and visceral and and engaged, like Meisner or some of that method stuff. Or or then you have these other people that are sort of obsessed with with movement and accent and 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 this other process of i guess i don't know if it's classically trained but 
I don't know. It's it, 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 it's interesting to me that I I've always preferred the methody kind. <laughs> you know, like I can start to see you start to see people's machine as they as they get older or as if they're overworking it you, you mm-hmm. know but you don't see that with you or with some of the other people that I, i've i've uh, grown up appreciating who come from the method area even somebody like pacino who at this age when he puts his mind to it can really do amazing work still absolutely <laughs> you he know like, really can <laughs> and and de niro sometimes if he has the right part and these are just the guys i know from reading that come from this like De Niro can become just sort of a, a series of, of twitches and mannerisms that you're familiar with. But they're his. But like even if you watch him in like that movie, The Intern, with or was that the one with? The, yeah, with Anne. He was great. He was yeah, gr- he was is great. great. And he is great. So is she. And I, you know something? I did a movie um, that is called Last Vegas. And, and, and in the movie, Bob and I are walking down a street in... Um, uh, in Las Vegas yeah. and it was my first day to work with him and it's just this little walk and talk yeah. scene yeah. and that's not about anything particularly extraordinary but for me working with him one second into it oh, yeah. I I thought okay alright so <laughs> it's not an accident that yeah. you are who you are. Oh, really? Yeah, you deserve you deserve <laughs> your accolades. What made you think that? Because so- he's so connected and present. He was he was so available to me as as the other person in that scene with him. He was so listening. He was so, you know, his bashful grin was so. Genuine? So genuine that it totally hit me. Oh yeah, pierced me right <laughs> yeah. in the heart. You yeah, know, yeah. it's like it was so alive, and and that um, that made me realize, you know, like okay. I mean, I suppose I'm so bad at car analogies because I'll just say the car of my childhood, which is I. You know, a Cadillac. Like yeah. I did see an occasional Cadillac in North Little Rock, and it was like, okay, yeah, there's this is one. why you want to drive one of these. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it's interesting. So, when to me is is that so? Once you learned what you learned, you know, from from Meisner and from you know doing the work, like how what do you what what stays with you? I mean, you know, how do you build character? How do you you know like what are the like once you know how to listen and, and show up and be present, or or at least you're comfortable in in that part of of the job, you know what's the other work? But it's always different. Uh-huh. It's like music. Yeah. It's like how do you play, you know, an instrument with a forty piece orchestra, right. and how do you play it with you know a heavy metal band? Right. If it's yeah, the yeah, same yeah. instrument. Sure, you sure. know, it's just always different, and it's like. Um, so, and it depends, like, uh, you've interviewed David Mamet before, yeah. right? So David, I did a play with David, and David prefers not to ever, ever one time for one second discuss the character. No, I know. I, I, I have a problem with him, and I told him, and it's it, it just, but he's he, he's set in his ways. Okay, but let me tell you something. Yeah. 
I I'm an actor who really actually likes different kinds of directors. Sure. I consider that part of my craft. You did a play with him or a film? Play. Okay. And so one of the things that happened was I was like, okay, you're my director. We're yeah. going to do this. We'll never discuss this character. Right. We'll never talk about her once. Yeah. Um, you tell me. I mean, David would give me a note and say, "Why did you? Why did you take that pause in the second act after such and such a line?" And I said, uh, "Oh, yeah, because I had to swallow there." And David would say, "Don't do that." And he wasn't. He wasn't joking. There was nothing funny to him about me doing that. And, yeah. and as as I went on, I began to realize because. It's a piece of music, to yeah. David. It's all music, right. and and you're just a part of it. You're just playing one of the. I am, but I will tell you that maybe not on schedule opening night. Yeah. Maybe it was a while after that. Yeah. But at there was a moment when I was doing that play that I thought I understand this woman better than just about anybody I'd ever played, and I'd never discussed her with my director once, and and it's because something about what he was doing did work for me. But it, it, but it, wouldn't that be the script on some level? Partly, but if I had um, imposed my own stuff, none of which I imposed on that woman, uh-huh. if I consciously imposed my own stuff and characters, which sometimes is your job, right? I don't think I would have found her as well as if I gave over to the music of his writing. What play is it? Uh, it's called uh, Boston Marriage. Uh-huh. And I, I'm pretty sure I got bad reviews on it. So FYI, this may, if if you believe just that, I don't even know because I don't read reviews, but right. pretty sure we all got. Um, but, but your feeling was that you, you knew her better than. In the end, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I did when the, person that reviewed it smart but (laughs) (laughs) um but in the end i felt really like i had kind of gone on an interesting journey yeah i i he seems very set in his ways and very stubborn about them and uh he's provocative i like the guy yeah mammoth but one of the things i talked to him about about is about his his the way he sees actors and and his particular uh, school of acting, which is like shut up and say your line. You know, stand on your mark and do it. You know, like don't. You know, I, he doesn't want to be involved with what you were saying. It, yeah. it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I said to him, I said, well, yeah, I'm. I, I, that's all well and good, but you're. You you have to. I, I don't know if that's for everybody in the sense that some people are are, are incredibly talented and 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 some people uh, most actors who are great are on some level naturals. They I, I believe that. Well, perhaps, but I <laughs> selfishly want it all, and yeah. and and I found him and that experience incredibly intriguing. Yeah, and I do think there. You know, the, these we are talking that all of this is about words, and that can sometimes get lost with actors when we're so busy thinking about how do I look and how how am I standing and how's my costume and you know right. that that in the end you are um, you really 
there to speak the words yeah. in part, you yeah, know? And, sure. and so, I don't know. I, I, I know that, 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 that thing he does might be controversial, but I feel really grateful I got to go there with him. Well, how, how far into it were you with, uh, I mean, how many years ago was that? Mm, I don't remember. I think, I think it was like maybe, I'm really bad with yeah. time. Yeah. I, I, it's like the only way I, I'm sure about time is ages of my children when, yeah, yeah. when they did things. But it was not, you, you weren't a, a newcomer. It was 10 years yeah, ago so or something relatively like that. recently. yeah. yeah. Wait, so you were ready to have that experience? Oh yeah, I want I want every experience. <laughs> I want I want I'm very hungry. I mean, that's the 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 movie I did uh, that's about to come out. Part of the sub the subject for me is really kind of more hunger than anything else because it's about um it's a movie called book club and it's about these four women that have been friends for a long time right and um some people will say oh it's a movie about older women talking about sex or it's older women or it's about friendship i mean people bring what they want to bring to it but to me it was about it's about hunger and about how there is this sort of um weird acceptance that the, when you're young, people say to you, "You can do anything. Yeah, try, try playing a musical instrument. Try learning a foreign language. Try doing this. You know." And then there's some point where no one says that to you, and then you don't. Worse, you don't say it to yourself. Yeah, and you can't tell me what age that is because right. we've never figured out. But the movie business pretty much backs up that idea by showing you none of those people unless there's someone's eccentric, dotty, pathetic aunt yeah. who herself is not trying anything new either. Right. And so to me, the movie was interesting because it was about being hungry for everything. And it's you, you know? Jane Fonda, uh, Diane Keaton, Candace Bergen. Yeah. That's and it. That's the and, and Don Johnson. And a lot of really great guys. Yeah, Craig T. Nelson. Craig T. Nelson is wonderful, and um, Richard Dreyfuss and uh, Ed like, Bagley, who was in the first movie I ever did. He, so. Ed Bagley plays Candace's ex. Yes, and and Dreyfuss is Candace's foray into. Uh, online dating. Where does and, it go though? Is this sort of like a sexual bucket list movie? Like, is it? <laughs> no, it's 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 a little bit. It's a little bit about sex. It's a little bit about love. It's yeah. a little bit about. Um, look, first of all, it's lightning in a bottle because when's the last time you saw you went to a movie that had four women over the age of sixty five and all great actresses and um, so that never happens to us. Yeah. And so the fact that you get that call and mm -hmm. they tell you who else is in the movie, and of course I'm cast last, so I did hear that the three of them, so oh, I didn't yeah. even care what yeah. the movie was about, just yeah. to have that experience. Right. And then- did you, had you, did you know all of them? I had met every one of them, but we didn't know each other well, and we hadn't worked together, and some weird chemistry thing happened, and- there's like text chains on my phone now. With the four of you? Oh yeah. Big time. Yeah, big time. That's like wild. we're um like Jane wanted a commitment out of us, you know. To what? Be friends? Yeah. That's sweet. Yeah. 
Well, Jane doesn't mess around. Jane's 80, and she, she just doesn't screw around now. And so and now you're in it. Yeah, you're in it. Yeah. I mean, she she made it very clear. Like, her son thinks it's the funniest thing in the world, how, how she talks about me. And, and But it's like, you commit, and I expect that from you. I want that. And, and she's like, you know, I did this interview with the BBC that's like two hours long about music, and... And I, I, you did. I said something to to Jane about it, and like two and a half hours later, like she's calling me crying because she's like found it, listened to it. You know, she she's she's ferociously hungry in a in life in a yeah. way that's really inspiring and beautiful, and, yeah. and that that our society sort of deems. Uh, almost, you know, just non-existent for people our age. We don't reflect it in in movies at all. I mean, I know people are sick of isms, but ageism is the most pervasive because every it doesn't matter what color or what gender you are. If you're lucky, you're going to get here. You know, if you're lucky. Yeah. And then it's weird that society robs you of just at a moment where you have so much to think about and talk about and and learn you're told and no yeah and no yeah <laughs> although i am amazed at how dumb i am at this age compared to what i expected oh <laughs> yes <laughs> but the world keeps like moving the goalposts you know but i mean but i mean but it depends on what you think dumb is i mean you do like there's a i'm not a enlightened i'm not i don't feel enlightened but you have wisdom some you do you yeah. do i mean yeah. are you, you going to give yourself credit for that are you of that no I, no no i can give myself credit for it but i guess i'm still bumping into i still you still make mistakes you still wound people you still um you know uh you're still learning i mean that's the whole I yeah. think that's the whole humanizing part of it is that I think I did think there was going to be me sitting cross-legged, you know, um, my palms up to the heavens and my eyes closed and I'd be very wise. And I'm just not that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Do you? Would you really want that at this point? I mean, At like, this point now that I'm here, no, that sounds awful. Mm-hmm. But at one point it sounded comforting to oh. think to think of it. Sure. So Begley was in the first movie you were in? Oh, yeah. I Which love one? Eggs. Um, it's a movie called Going South. I Jack, remember that. Jack Nicholson that's a, that's is my great... hero. He's the person who who cast me in my first movie. He's my first leading man. He's took... Wasn't Belushi in that too? John Belushi's first movie. He plays a Mexican, him. Yes, right? I loved him, yes. I remember. He was nothing but trouble, and I loved him from the minute I laid eyes on him. <laughs> yeah. I remember that movie. It was sort of like, uh, uh, what, what was the plot? Um, so in the Civil War, so many men were killed off that if a woman wanted to marry a convict, she could save him from the gallows. This was a true like law at yeah. Western. The, uh, she could save him from the gallows, but she had to be responsible for him. And um, I had a gold mine that um, I needed a man to work. Of and course, so, what a problem. So a criminal is um, the first choice. Yeah, and so <laughs> I had this criminal, but every time he he bothered me or 
did something I didn't like, I just threatened to call the sheriff and have him pick back up. So he, I had, he was my slave essentially. Jack Nicholson was. Yeah. yeah. And he, he's your savior. He's your savior. Well, he cast me as my, in my first film. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you without him. Although he said I would have found some, some way, you know. He would have found you some way? He, he no, I think he meant that I would have figured, yeah, oh, I would have figured out way. my career somehow, but I, I credit him utterly. And how did he find you? Um, so six years into New York, I was yeah. still a waitress. I did comedy improv with a, a, a little troupe of five people, and we were the resident company at the Manhattan Theater Club, and nothing was happening. Where were you waitressing? So my first waitress job was at Noah's Ark on 65th and 1st, mm. Bubbles, the bartender. I remember a guy coming in and asking if he could use the phone, and she pointed to it. And then as he walked there, she goes, pick up your feet. <laughs> it's like he wasn't walking the right way for her. She was a, she was magnificent. And so... um yeah, I lied. My friend Momo Yashima helped me get the job and uh, lied and said I was a waitress, that yeah. I had experience. Sure, and that's how everybody starts. And the, <laughs> the kitchen was down a flight of stairs. Oh, God. So freaking every time you turned in an order, you went down a flight of stairs, came back up, and every time you went to pick up your food, you had to go <sighs> down. So I had blisters on blisters the first night because I, I wore the wrong shoes, of sure. course. And then- and so Bubbles goes, at the end of the night, she goes, all right, you've got the job, but don't ever lie to me again. <laughs> <laughs> she knew, man. <laughs> but that was, so, okay. Um, and then 76 and second, none of these places are here anymore, by Hell, the way. Yeah. Hudson Bay Inn. That was amazing. Yeah. That was, um, so that was a place that um, I waited on this woman uh, for years that yeah. was a casting director and yeah. the other waitresses always said tell her you're an actress and I <laughs> yeah. went no she's here to eat dinner she doesn't want to hear that I'm yeah. an a uh, you know yet another actress is waiting on you so I never did and she would come in with her brother and it was on Wednesday nights you had a special chicken parmesan and she would it was chicken parmesan they would both order it um, and she would say, hold the spaghetti. And her brother had a stutter. So I waited for, stand. I would stand there for ages till he got parmi the word Parmesan out, right? <laughs> yeah. And then I'd go put in their order. And every single Wednesday night, they stiffed me. They never left me a tip because it was the special. I'm doing air quotes right now. Yeah. Special. And so so then um, um, years later, I'm... I've made a couple of movies. Yeah. I think I'm, maybe I'd won my Oscar on the third. I mean, I know I won on the third movie. I think this was after that. Yeah. I'm at a party at, oh my God, I just lost his name. Who produced, who was the big, Alan Carr. Yeah. I was at his house out in Malibu at a party. Yeah. And this woman comes up to me. <clears throat> this lady comes up and says, Mary Steenburgen, I'm your biggest fan. Uh -huh. I know everything you've ever done. I can quote every line. You don't have a bigger fan than me. I know every expression I feel like on your face. I just, I know you so well. And I said, Hudson Bay Inn, Wednesday nights, chicken parmesan, hold the spaghetti. 
And she just went totally white and turned around and walked away <laughs> because she had never looked at the waitress. Not uh, one time had she ever looked at the waitress. <laughs> and that was it? You never talked to her again? No, and I didn't say anything more. And I've never told who it was. But it's like, you know, uh, that's, that, great. that's, that's <laughs> like that's... for all you people waiting tables out there, I do look into your eyes. <laughs> that's spectacular. She just walked away. Yep. Just slunk away. Oh, because she knew that she was she terrible. Knew. Well, she, she knew two things. One, that she'd never looked at me. Or tipped you. Or two, ever tipped me. Right. Because it was a special. Sure. Yeah. So Nicholson, so he you were going to say the improv oh, group. He found so, so someone saw me. Actually, it was it was Chris Guest's mother, Jean Guest. Chris Guest, who's brilliant. Yeah. Um, his mother saw me... Um, she and Mary Buck saw me at the Manhattan Theater Club and rec uh, recommended me to um, to a, a huge casting director, Juliette yeah. Taylor, who sure. casts Woody Allen everything, stuff, right? Woody Allen stuff. Yeah. And she was away having a baby, but there was this um, wonderful person there, Gretchen Rennell, that was uh, casting. And um, I went and had a meeting. And at the end of the meeting, I was going to leave. And um, something, some little something went off in my brain. And I turned around and said, are you casting anything in particular? And she said, I'm casting um, a movie called Going South, but I, I, I don't think I can get you in on it. I would love to, but mm. I don't think I can. It's like well-known actresses and, you know, people who've already worked in yeah. film and stuff and and um uh and beautiful models yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and um and so i said okay and then some bizarre thing like literally made me say i'm gonna go sit down out there and wait and maybe you'll see if you could just give me a script uh-huh and she just looked at me strangely and i went out the door and I sat down outside, and there was this pile of scripts on the desk that said going south, and there was the world's most beautiful model sitting across from me waiting to go in with the script. Uh -huh. And so that woman went in, and I thought, you have just alienated the most important person that you know in all of New York in yeah. casting. You have just <laughs> blown it so big time. And yeah. when that girl comes out, you need to pop your head in and say, I'm so sorry. I was so pushy and I'm, I'm sorry. And so I'm looking down, formulating my apology to her. And I see these two feet and I hear this voice going, are you waiting to see me? And I know the voice yeah. is Jack Nicholson. <laughs> yeah. For me, had I pictured he's in California, you know, in L.A. or uh -huh. something. But he wasn't. He was deep in the bowels of that office. Uh-huh. And um, and my first instinct was to not let him see. This is such a female thing. I had on a really crap T-shirt that somebody had left on my table and didn't come and claim <laughs> that cost $2.95 from this store called Azuma. Yeah. And I look like crap. And, 
and I didn't want him to see me. And yeah. I had some idea that if I could could come back the next day, I could look better. Yeah. So I just kind of kept my head down. I said, no, I'm not waiting to see you. And he goes, why not? And I finally looked up at him and I said, because I don't have a script. And he goes over, picks up one of the scripts, hands it to me and goes, okay, 10 minutes tomorrow, you know? Yeah. And I go, okay. And, and I leave. And so when I come back the next day, He's told her, I'm going to meet this girl. <laughs> and she actually was lovely. And I go in and I start reading. And I remember us talking about basketball because I was a Knicks fan back then. And he was a Lakers fan. We talk about actors and basketball and stuff. And then when I felt calm, we start reading and, and we read through several scenes. And then he looked at me and he goes, where have you been? I said, uh, uh, well, I've been here for six years. And and he goes, okay, let's read some more. And we just started reading and reading and reading. His pizza came. I stood up to leave. He goes, no, sit down. Eat the pizza. Keep reading. <laughs> and, you know, it was just one of these magical moments where six years of being told no and surviving and getting back up and studying with Sandy and knowing how to do my homework and you know it just was my moment and yeah. <laughs> and somehow I rose to that occasion and but at the end of it he goes now I want to direct this film and you know what that means right and and I said yeah and of course that was a total lie I had no idea what that meant yeah. and so I just said goodbye and we left I left and it was it was in what is now Freaking Trump Tower. It used to be the Gulf and Western building. Yeah. The Columbus Circle, uh -huh. right? Yeah. So I go down and I was so glad nobody was in the elevator because I was just like pounding the walls and like, <laughs> you know, deep breathing and like did you even quiet have an screaming. Agent? I did. Uh -huh. I had an agent. I had an agent. Okay. And and um and so then uh I thought I started asking people, what do you mean when he said that he wanted to direct and I know what that means? And they said, well, it means he can't cast you. And I said, why? And he goes, because you're no one. <laughs> you're nobody and you have a weird last name and he can have all these movie stars. Uh -huh. And um, so um, the next day, I met I'm at the Magic Pan, which is where I was waitressing in the end. Oh, yeah. A French in the a little crepery. French crepery and a little green dirndl <laughs> is what my outfit was called. <laughs> now in orthopedic shoes because I was no dummy. And and so anyway, I get this. I call my answering service and it says, "Can you please call Warren Beatty at such and such number?" <laughs> <laughs> and I had only told one person about the whole Jack thing, and it was my friend Pamela Muller Caraman that was in the comedy improv group with me. And so I knew this that she had arranged for this joke of Warren Beatty calling me because she's very funny and yeah. she was playing a joke on me. So in between serving crepes, I would say, Funny Pam, that's funny. And she's what? And I said, You know, Warren Beatty. Like like I'm gonna call the number. I know that's gonna be a joke. Yeah. And and she goes, Mary call the freaking number and like throughout the entire lunch service there's this thing going between the tables yeah. of like please call please call so finally i go to the payphone i like put in the quarters i call the number and uh it's the 
uh, Hampshire House, I think is the name of it, on Central Park South. And then they put me through to Warren Beatty. And she's standing there going, I told you, I told you. And um, it's Warren Beatty. And he goes, so my friend Jack Nicholson told me that if I cast you, the only way I can cast you in my movie, Heaven Can Wait, is if... Um, if he doesn't use you in his movie going south. So I want you to come read for, for my movie tomorrow. And I'm like, wait, the, like I'm at the magic pan still in my French dirndl outfit and you want me to come read your movie. And so, and there's two movie stars like fighting over me. And so I do, I go read for him. And he, I remember him saying, can we just read it right now? I said, but I haven't read the script yet. And he goes, well, just, I don't want you having the script outside of this apartment, you know, because he was pretty paranoid yeah. about the script, you know, itself. And I said, I have an idea. I'm going to go to that park bench across the street. You can see me. You've got, you know, you know where I work. You know everything you need to know. Yeah. You can watch me read this script, and then I'll come back, and then I'll read for you, because yeah. otherwise it's like I'm reading it cold. So I went across the street and sat on a park bench, and every once in a while I'd look up, and there's Warren Beatty in the window. <laughs> and then I'd come back up, and i read the script for him. And then he says, I really want Julie Christie for this role, but if she doesn't do it, I'm really interested in you if you don't do going south. Then I go downstairs and I call my answering machine and they say, you're coming, or service, and they say, you're coming to Hollywood for a screen test for going south. And so I flew out, all big stars. I borrowed $1,000 from my friends in Arkansas so I, I could stay more than one night, which they were going to pay the hotel bill. I came out. I like did meetings. I didn't know why everybody wanted to meet me. And I later found out Jack was behind all the meetings. You know, he open doors oh yeah and um uh didn't sleep with him by the way in case you wonder (laughs) most people do but somehow either i don't know maybe i I just i don't know why it never happened but anyway so um so then did he want to i don't think so i think you would know yeah i don't think so yeah we talked about it one time and he just said it's he goes, I, I want people to take you seriously, you know? And that's pretty cool. Yeah. And I wouldn't have. And I wouldn't have because I wanted to take me seriously too. And then then on the day that I'd run out of my money and I had to get from the airport um, into Manhattan to go back to the yeah. Magic Pan, I'd cut it so close that I didn't have enough money to even get into the city. And so I went in to get my one night's hotel bill. I went to Paramount and Jack's in a big office. And I said, thank you so much for this unique and incredible experience. Can I please have my one night's hotel bill in cash? uh, If you don't mind that you guys owe me. And Jack's smoking a big cigar and he goes, don't worry about a kid. You're on the payroll. And, and I was cast. (laughs) It's it's so nice that he was so decent. He was so... It, I mean, Mark, after this, I moved... I, I went to the Chateau Marmont. That's, I stayed in a bungalow at the Chateau Marmont. And my job every day was to take a cab to Paramount to go into a screening room where I was the only person in it. He would run films for me. 
And then he would come in at the end of the film and talk to me about why that film was important or how Catherine Hepburn did such and such or Jean Arthur, you know, worked uh-huh. her magic or, you know, what what he wanted to school me in romantic comedies because he knew I knew nothing about film acting. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what he did for me. So, wow. Yeah. Do you, are you in touch with him still? Not a lot. Yeah. I I saw him a few years ago at a screening or something, and I love it when I see him. Is and he happy to see you? Yeah, I think so. And <laughs> and I hope so. I hope I made him proud. And when I and when I won the Oscar for Melvin and Howard, I talked about him more than I talked about anybody. Even though it wasn't for his movie, it was for a movie with Jonathan Demme. But, sure, but I I talked about Jack more than I talked about anybody. And because you think Sandy? I, because I yeah. I think Sandy. I think the guy Kenneth Gillum that um, had been my professor that sent me to New York. You did, yeah, uh, yeah. They're all part and of Jack. it. Jack, big time Jack. Yeah, yeah he and was, he was he sitting up front. Was he in the room? God, I, that I don't think. I don't think he Not was. Yet. Yeah. So the Jonathan Demi, so this came directly from Going South, or how'd you, like, because you did two movies with him. I mean, there was a lot of years between them, yeah. but you did Philadelphia. No, I did Time After Time was my second yeah. movie, and then uh, Melvin and Howard was my third, and Jonathan was, oh my God, <laughs> it's, it's hard for me <clears throat> still uh, to believe that Jonathan, who was such a life force, did you ever interview him? No. Oh, I didn't think so, because I knew I'd never seen it yeah. um, listed, but he was a magnificent human being, and an utterly creative man, and a wonderful human, and husband, and dad, and friend. He was young, too, right? Yeah. That's so sad. Yeah. Yeah. So, that that. But the joy of working with him was pretty, pretty cool. And and a script by Bo Goldman, who's a great writer. Well, you know, that that was pretty amazing. Your third movie, you won Best Supporting Actress. and In was, Arkansas, I actually remembered this the other day that somebody said to my mother, tell her that sometime she's probably going to win a Best Actress. <laughs> <laughs> Someday. <laughs> and it was like, it was like. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I I was feeling pretty good about this. Yeah. You yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> a, that's it's always the way. There's always one of those. Oh my god. Yes. It's the worst. Yeah. It's just the worst. It's well. Yeah. And you've is. had a, you'd, you've, you never stopped working. You know. You've done oh no, all. I stopped working. I had years <laughs> that I didn't. Nobody remember to call. Really? I had, oh yeah. I definitely did. And the weirdest thing is that. When I pictured this age, I'm 65, yeah. and when I pictured 65, I just thought, "What? it'll be so sad because I love what I do so much and no one will be hiring me to do it. And and what will I do with all that, that huge heart for it, yeah. you know? And, and that's not what's happened at no, all. No, he's got the series with uh, Will. I do Last Man on Earth with Will Forte. Yeah. Yeah, which is just, and our crazy little gang over there is just the most, I love them. These funny, funny, wonderful actors. And I I was always jealous of Ted 
not because of the success of Cheers, but because of um, that he had had this posse and that he'd, he'd gotten to work with people over a long period of yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, Because uh, I just felt like to really know people like that and work with them every day and to know yeah. like all their crap and to like yeah. what they are going to eat and craft service when they shouldn't and like you know every all those stupid little things that I wanted to know about people I do know about the people on last you know oh, January good. Jones and Kristen <laughs> Shaw and Mel Rodriguez yeah. and Cleopatra Coleman and yeah. you know and sometimes now we have Jason Sudeikis and yeah. You know, it's just really... You got um, a little crew. And then Will Forte is just like looking, peering every day into one of the true original minds ever. And he's just, he endlessly amuses me. He's and, a good, sweet guy too. Yeah. We just, we're on vacation together in Hawaii. That's how much I love him. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. That's, that's good. Yeah. And you and Ted is great. Like he, I had a great time with him. You both seem so so sweet and engaged. He's nice. He's um, a privilege to live with. Oh, good. And deeply funny, which is incredibly important to me. Yeah, he, I got some. We had some good laughs uh, when he when I talked to him. Hey. He did oh, he did his generic greeting. <laughs> oh my God! You have, going with him to anything. I feel like I need to have body armor on because he doesn't. He doesn't know anyone's name ever, and he. He acts he like do, he knows everybody, and he acts like he knows everybody. So then, inevitably, he does this. There's this hideous moment where both of them look at me, and I'm supposed to clean up on all four right. for Ted. Yeah, and um, so it's like I've just said, just stick with the haze, yeah. hun. Just stick with haze. <laughs> Don't fish for the name because you <laughs> won't get it. You're just not getting it ever. And this, by the way. It's not like when you get older and you do this kind of crap, you think, oh, it's because I'm losing it. Yeah. But he was exactly that way when I met him at 45. <laughs> if anything, he's a little more with it now than he was. Cause... <laughs> yeah. It's sometimes you just don't pay attention. I'm terrible with the name thing. Terrible. Yeah. Like I've known people decades and I'm like, yeah, what? Just yeah. Never come. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, thank you for coming. Well, thank you for having me. I'm a fan, and I listen to you. So this it's was so really great. Nice. Yeah, I feel. I feel it was good. I feel like. Um, Should I feel cheated that I wasn't in the old no old this garage? Is, you know what? This one's like. You know, I've talked to people longer in here. You sure, I've talked to me a long time, and I'm. I'm let me just no, ask no, you right now: mean, Should I get home and go into deep regret about what a motor mouth I was? Or no, is no, that no, the no, whole no. I know, no. It's great. Okay. What I'm saying is that something's happening in this garage that is a little more focused than the last one. Like the other one, like it, it, it had such history to it, but that you kept getting distracted. No, it's not distracted. I I don't know what it is. I, it's it, there's just something. It's this one's cozy in a different way. Like I had Josh Brolin in here. We end up like oh, I all, love Josh. Yeah, he's great. Does a great Nick Nolte impression. Yes, he does. But uh, <laughs> but like I'm just like it's like there's more. Like I'm just a, for some reason the conversations are going on. Can You're I not, can I, I just try. so quickly what? tell you one quick Josh Brolin story? Yeah, yeah. We did um like a TV movie thing years and years ago, and he was um he just made me laugh so much, and he was um 
constantly putting down the South, and we were in the South because of like Southern food and talking about, you know, fried and this and that, and putting yeah. everything down and putting me down for how much I love mm. Southern food, soul food, and all that stuff. And so I don't know why, what prompted this, but. I went to the um, costume person and I said, on the days that he just has a really not much of a scene, can you take, can you have a pair of jeans that you just keep taking in incrementally a little bit every time he works? And they were like, yes, (laughs) they were so into this stupid joke. And so, so his jeans at, and everyone then I promptly told everyone in this set like Josh is going to start complaining about how tight his clothes are but but just don't <laughs> don't buy so anyway it kept he did start whining more and more about god how do you guys eat down here and not get fat I'm getting so fat finally there was like the the biggest <laughs> evening that I said now take him in like a serious yeah, amount yeah. and and uh so she Took the jeans in. She put him. She put him in his trailer. And there's like six of us outside in the grass outside of his trailer, and we can see his silhouette yeah. inside the trailer. And he's jumping up and down trying to get these jeans on. <laughs> and finally, the he throws the door open, and I he this painful scream for the wardrobe wardrobe. And I said, Josh, Josh, what's the matter? And he goes, I can't have gained this much weight. And I said, put your put your hand in the pocket. And he goes, what? And he reflexively reaches into the pocket and it just says, gotcha in there. <laughs> oh, I just remembered that it was retribution for something he did to me, but I'll, that'll be another story for what? another what day. Is, what is that? No, it's not. It, well, it's nowhere near as brilliant a practical joke as mine was. Okay. So it, you're, you got the better story. You can ask him. Okay. Well, thank you for, t- for, for telling me that one. Yeah. It's, you're lovely. It's great talking to you. Thank you. Lovely, no? How lovely, how lovely was that? How lovely. You say your L's right. Mary Steenburgen. Book Club with Jane Fonda and Candice Bergen, Diane Keaton, and Mary's in theaters tomorrow, May 18th. That was a real privilege. Real, real sweet uh, talking to her. I, I loved it. All right, I'll talk to you when I get back to uh, to Alabama. I'm going to be here for another uh, week or so, uh, so I'll talk to you on Monday, uh, and you know maybe I'll let you know what what happened in New York, and you know hopefully we'll all be here. Hopefully all the volcanoes don't decide to erupt because that would be beyond coincidence. And sorry, folks, uh, for what you're going through down there on the Big Island. Um, I hope uh, I hope it settles down. I hope I hope. And uh, thinking about you. All right. Boomer lives. <laughs> <laughs>